Welcome to The Miller's Tale, Episode 4. My name is Mike Whitaker, and this is episode four of The Miller's Tale, uh, thus proving that I don't always keep my scheduling promises as if that came as any surprise at all. Um, yes, apologies, this was supposed to come out in October, but due to late deliveries of free time and motivation, I got the core of the podcast recorded early in the month and then ran out of time, uh, compounded with thinking, you know, actually, that wasn't very good and I will need to edit it. And now I've actually done so, it was a lot better than I obviously thought it was. So, um, this episode is going to be slightly different um, because I am not in the business of releasing multi-hour episodes because I have better things to do with my life than edit them apart from anything else. So, this episode, there will be no news, there will be no what have I been doing, um, there will be no... Blog watch, and in fact, we're just going to get stuck in straight with a new feature that I've decided to call In the Cold Light of Day, in which I take a look at a rule set or a product of some description that I've had for long enough that I can actually produce a review that actually covers the things that annoy you after you've had the rule set for long enough, among other things. Did that make sense? It made sense to me anyway. So, without further ado, let's roll some music and get stuck in. Okay, so welcome to the main section of the podcast. I thought we'd try something different that might become a regular feature this time out, which is that instead of me picking nebulous concepts in wargaming to natter on about, I'm going to do a review. But I'm going to do a review slightly differently, and we're going to call this section something like Cold Light of Day. And instead of reviewing new stuff, I'm going to review stuff that I've played for a while that I can look at with, well, yes, essentially, in the cold light of day, having played it enough that I'm more aware of the flaws, the things that you don't spot on first reading, and maybe one or two playtests. So this time out, for what I'm sure, if you know me well, with perfectly obvious reasons, um, we're going to pick I Ain't Been Shot Mom. So, I Ain't Been Shot Mom. It is two fat lardies principal World War II company-level rule set, by which I mean your typical forces are an infantry company with supports. Now, obviously, you can you can go off book with this, and there's nothing to stop you having slightly smaller forces or something that's an awful lot of tanks 
or something that's completely different, like um, an American assault section, or a bunch of American assault sections in landing craft on D-Day, which aren't classic platoons. They're they're thirty men in a completely different format. But it, it, fundamentally, it boils down to you're looking at about a hundred figures, um, thirty men, three platoons, and some supports, and possibly that can vary depending on which force you're actually playing with because some forces have bigger sections than others etc etc so so that's your core conceit uh the ground scale is in fact spot on for six millimeter scale this is an, a not uncommon trait of recent lardy rules in that chain of command is actually one-to-one -one scale it one-to-one -one if you play in 15 mil scale uh, i ain't been chopman is spot on for six mil scale which is roughly one three hundredth so that essentially means that 100 yards is a foot. He says, trying to do the math off the top of his head and hoping he's got it right. This leads to the fact that there are some folks out there like Mark Lester who build the most beautiful tables in 6mm. And you have that glorious, what various people I know call the empty battlefield syndrome, where you there is more open space than, than not. In 15mm, it's actually pretty good. I wouldn't go any larger than 15mm for, for obvious reasons. It starts getting... Your, your infantry sections start, start taking up too much space on the table. Your buildings start taking too much space on the table. And I think you have to suspend disbelief too much in scale. Were I starting again, and I play it in 15mm, I would probably give serious thoughts to play it in 6mm. For a number of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that it's a damn sight cheaper, it's a damn sight easy to paint, and terrain... Frankly, I'd be throwing stuff on the 3D printer for, for buildings and so on and so forth. And it is perfectly possible um, to make a very, very good-looking table in 6mm. I'll pop some links in the show notes to Mark Blaster's really rather excellent photos on Flickr, which show just what you can do in 6 However, I play in 15, which does have the compensatory advantage that if it moves, um, Battlefront probably make it in the Flames of War range. Now, this is great simply because if you particularly want to model some really obscure theatre of war, the odds are that somewhere in the Flames of War range, those figures and vehicles actually exist. If they don't, there's a bunch of other useful ranges. Plastic Soldier Company are producing plastic tanks for all the common things on most sides by the bucket load. They do pretty much have now, if you want a Sherman, as long as it doesn't have HVSS suspension, and isn't a jumbo, pretty much Plastic Soldier Company will sell you a kit with a, with a set of pieces on the sprue that will make it. And on top of that, they do all the classic Panzer 3s, 4s, Panthers, Tigers, Churchills, Cromwells, etc, etc, etc. So it is not that hard to build up a force, particularly with the advent of Flames of War Plastics as well, that doesn't cost you the earth. On top of that, scenery is dead easy to come by. Because you've got the likes of Foreground, Sarissa, a whole load of little manufacturers as well, Flames of War's own scenery range, and so on and so forth. And it is pretty easy to build up convincing looking tables, convincing looking forces, without too much trouble. The rules! Right, it's a two fat lardies game, so you should know what to expect. First off, you'll probably expect that I'm going to like it, and you're right. It's card based activation. Now, they've gone through in their time, a number of variant activation methods 
involving some involving cards, some involving dice. Of the the card based activation methods, typically have three things that that uniquely sort of identify them. Do you have cards for the units as well as the leaders in the deck? Um, for example, Duxbury Tarnier only has cards for the leaders, as does Sharp Practice Two. Uh, I ain't been sure has cards for the leaders and the units, as does Charlie Don't Surf, which is essentially by it being shotman for the Vietnam War. And then, do you have a tea break, tiffin, call it what you like, card that stops activation before you have completely gone through the deck? Again, Sharp Practice has this. I ain't been shotman has this. Dux Britanniorum does not. Now, you're going to hit the point here of this is probably that if you're not familiar with the concept this is probably going to be the point at which you either going to love it or hate it if you want to play chess with tanks if you want everything to go whether if you want perfect control over what you can move you i ain't being shopman isn't for you and i'd also go as far as as far as to say that it's a sufficiently intrinsic part of the way the rules are designed to work that taking out tiffin cards just to get take away from that is is spoiling things rather you need to play I Ain't Been Shot Mum with the expectation that not all your units will activate. There is a rule that says that anything within nine inches at the end of a turn that has where the tiffin card, tea break, tea break card comes up, hasn't fired, gets to fire. So units that are engaged in a close quarters firefight of some kind will still do something. But the whole point of these rules is they are designed to represent friction. They're designed to represent the fact that you are a company-level commander and the guys at platoon and section level are not going to do exactly what you tell them to do. And if anybody thinks that that's, that's unrealistic, you need to go away and you need to find a whole bunch of narratives of World War II of how things happened with the troops on the ground and, and discover just how often, uh, as, as Burns has it, the best-laid plans of mice and men do not turn out to be very useful at all in the cold light of day. Again, that's one of the reasons I love and recommend a number of times Ken Maxey's book Battle. It's actually a fictional account of a World War II Normandy battle, but it do, it is written by someone who understands the concept of friction, even if he doesn't call it such, and you can actually read through it with a copy of the IBM Shopman rules in hand and pretty much go, oh yeah, um, that's kind of like this big man card came up and this happened. So, cards. Uh, essentially, you have for every, your force organisation, you have cards for every thing at a roundabout platoon level. So that'll be a troop of tanks, a platoon, i.e. three sections of men, support sections, etc., etc., etc. You also have cards for officers. Now, typically, you will descend your organisation chart to the platoon CO level possibly section CO for support sections. So you will probably have, for something like a British company, you will have the company CO, the company's um, sergeant major, uh, a leader for each platoon, probably a leader for any notable support section. So for the Germans' case, if you've got a company-level set of MG34s or 42s, they'll have a leader, although it might be the equivalent of the sergeant major. And Similar things around that level. Tank, tank troops will typically have a leader and so forth. The way leaders work is there is a hierarchy of command. Your company CO, if his card comes up, 
can give activations to anything under his command. Your platoon CO can only activate units in his platoon, and so on and so forth. So you have a hierarchy of command. It places on you an onus to get a leader where you need one to be. Now, it is possible, and I've been experimenting with it, with smaller forces, if you want slightly more control and to give players more interesting challenge problem, I've I've built scenarios where there are two, two platoons, and we, we've, we've assumed that the third platoon is often reserved, not doing anything. And sometimes, in the interest of keeping things moving, I've added platoon sergeants as big men. So each platoon actually has two big men rather than one. And this, again, makes things activate. Now, the reason I say this, the reason why the, tiffin, the tea break card needs to stay in, is that part of the command challenge is basic stats says any card has a 50% chance of coming up before the tea break, which means if you want a platoon to do something, and it's important, or you want a section in the platoon to do something, or a couple of sections in the platoon to do something, then you've got a 50-50 chance of it doing it. If you put an officer with it, and say the officer is level two, so it has two, he has two command initiatives, so he can activate two sections, then you've just, your, your, your chances just went up to 75%, because there's a 50% chance that the platoon card won't turn up, a 50% chance that he, his card won't turn up, so that's only a one in four chance that neither will turn up. Um, there's an article on my blog on probability in wargaming if you need that one explained. So essentially, if you need something to happen, in pretty much the same, it, it's a subtle abstraction. We've I've discussed abstractions in previous podcasts. It's a subtle abstraction in that basically it says if you put the officer with the men, the, the men are more likely to do what you expect them to do, which is actually it's not that subtle an abstraction really, is it? Now obviously you can take this even further. If you're absolutely desperate for something to happen, then you can send the company sergeant major along with the with the platoon, and suddenly your chances of not getting any section to activate are about one in eight because you have to have all three cards not turn up rather than just the platoon card. So that's your, that's your activation. As I said, officers have command initiatives. Each initiative allows you to order a section or unit of similar size, not a platoon, a section, to do something. If the platoon card comes up, all the sections in the platoon can act. So in some ways, the platoon card is better because more units activate, but the officer cards allow you to direct commands. Now, obviously, if something's activated off a platoon card, you can't then activate it again in that turn. Equally, if an officer has activated it, you can't activate it off the platoon card as well. So you need to keep track of what's, what's activated. Now, that's, that's the core of the deck. Basically, big man cards, officer cards, call them what you will, section unit cards, and the tea break card. In addition to that, there are a number of ways of modifying the behaviour of your troops, some of which involve putting extra cards in the deck. For example, it is not uncommon to give a German section a machine gun bonus card, which basically represents the fact that they have shitloads of MG34s and are quite obnoxious about using them with every available opportunity. And the machine gun bonus card allows you to use it again. You can fire one machine gun section again. So if you've got a stack of tripod-mounted MG34s or 42s in a defensive position, machine gun bonus cards up, one of them gets card turns up, one of them gets another turn. 
There are also cards, other beneficial cards. There's a rally card, which means that you can rally shock off. We'll come to shock in a minute. There are cards that govern things like breakdowns. If a breakdown card comes up and the next card, if, if say, an Axis breakdown card comes up, the next card is an Axis vehicle, that vehicle is doomed to broke down. There are hesitant troop cards, poor fire discipline cards. There's a heroic leader card, which you can use once a game and effectively allows one of your leaders to do some commando comic-style heroism. There's a dynamic leader card, which allows you to get a leader from one end of the battlefield to the other a bit quicker if you need if he's trying to run a very stretched-out defence. It's not uncommon you'll give the defenders a, a dynamic leader card so that their leaders can run up and down the battlefield doing things. So that's that's kind of kind of an interesting concept. Activations. So I've talked about activating things. When you come to activate a unit, most units will have three actions if they're at full strength. Now, an action is a, is a number of things. The key, most likely ones are you can use one action to fire on one dice. You use one action to move for one dice. You can use one action to spot. They're, they're probably the three core things you will do with a the unit. There are others. I won't cover them in the review. They're in the rules. Go by the rules. So essentially, um, oh, the third, the fourth, probably is important, is you can go to ground, which adds a level of cover to you. Now, so given my infantry section has just been activated, it has three actions. So it can move for three dice. Now, notice it's three dice. It's not 18 inches. We assume that, we assume that the vagaries of terrain are not represented at the kind of level we're putting scenery on the table. The fact that the landscape from the hedge that your unit is currently behind to the one it's heading for is completely flat on the table is not an accurate representation of the likely reality. And in general, the idea behind that is that your men, with the best one in the world, you can order a bunch of guys to go from this hedge to this hedge, and you have no idea how long it's going to take. You can say you'd really like it to take them about a minute, but if they are motivated to get a shift on, they might do it in less. Equally, if Private Blogs trips in a rabbit hole and drops the brain ammo, it might take them longer. If somebody spots a movement, they might go to ground and not make it there until they've cased out, scoped out the movement, and so on and so forth. There are So that's the justification behind random movement. Some people find it frustrating. I think it represents an abstraction of a command challenge. And as such, I like it. You can fire. So for each action you dedicate to firing, you roll a dice. You add all the dice you roll together and look up on... It's a little bit old school. It's a fire table. It's an A4 table that basically has your dice roll down one side and your range bracket and then the quality of your target. And you look to see what damage you do based on that. Now, target quality is a good, great, Good, great, okay, or poor. Now, deliberately, these are not described as open, soft cover, hard cover, though they pretty much are. But the whole point of I Ain't Been Chopman's fire table is that it allows you to apply column shifts on a, a sort of judgmental basis, let's say. If you're, for example, you're in the open, but you're standing behind the smoke drifting from two brewed-up tanks. You might make it a okay shot rather than a great shot. Now, the other thing about this is that your go-to-ground action, I mentioned earlier, basically shifts you one column 
worse. So you will very often find that the typical infantry advance, cautious infantry advance, and I ain't been shot when his two dice of movement go to ground. Which, even if so, even if you're in an open field, it materially reduces the amount of damage you're likely to take. Which, given that the great damage results are really, really quite painful, especially at close range, it's generally considered a smart move. Now, combat results. Your table produces a number and potentially a letter. The number is the number of hits. The letter is either P or S. We'll get the letter in a minute. Number of hits for each hit, re-roll a D6. On a 1 or a 2, there is no damage. On a 3 or a 4, you take a point of shock off the unit. On a 5 or a 6, the unit takes a casualty. Now, casualty means figure is no longer able to take part in combat. May not be a kill if you're using various post-session rules for campaign continuity. You can rule that so many casualties go back to Blighty, so many are fit to fight for the next battle. And points in between if you want to. Shock is the classic two fat lardies abstraction of morale, if you like. Your unit takes a point of shock. It loses one inch of its movement. It takes two for every two points of shock. It loses one off its roll on the fire table. And so on. So essentially, the more shock you accumulate, the slower you move, uh, the worse you fire. Equally, the more kills you accumulate, we'll get to in a minute, because that's quite subtle. If your shock exceeds the number of figures you have left, then your unit's morale has gone. It has lost its bottle, and it will run away. If you can get an officer to it and use one of his command initiatives that he isn't using for activating a unit, you can use that command initiative to rally off a point of shock. If you've got or if a rally killed turns up, you can also use that to rally off shock. So again, there's a there's a, a challenge here in getting your officers where they need to be in order to keep units not losing shock. You quite often find that if your unit is in a static defensive position, then if your officer is not being used to activate them because activations happened on the card or something beforehand, he's spending a lot of time rallying off shock if they're getting shot at. Um, just what I'd like to refer to as slapping shoulders and backsides, yelling in people's ears, and keeping them motivated to fight. Now, the other two results you can get from the combat table are a P and an S. P is pinned, can't move, um, gone to ground, so gain an extra level of cover, and shooting at half effect, and suppressed, which is even worse. It doesn't happen quite as often so much so that I haven't got the rules of it, I can't remember the exact result for suppressed, but basically... At the end of a turn when the T-break card comes up, suppresses go down to pins, pins come off. So there's a degree to which what you want to do is to hit something hard enough to pin it and then keep piling stuff on it. Because once it comes off pinned, it'll slip. Because it won't be firing back until the end of the turn at that point. At least not not particularly well. Right, so that's that's effectively combat. I should have covered in that that Typical section strength for uh, I Ain't Been Chopman is what we call effective strength rather than book strength. So for all that a book strength British Army section is 10 men, uh, I Ain't Been Chopman fields 8, 12 men American sections 10, um, 15 men big Russian sections from early war 12, that kind of thing. Now, 
With each unit, there comes a table. And this table basically says, if you have this many figures left, this is how many actions you get. So typically for a British infantry section, it'll get three action dice with uh, eight figures and probably even seven figures. It'll then get six, five, four. It'll probably have three. Two, it'll have one. Three and two, it'll have one. And below one, it'll have zero. And it's effectively no use as a fighting once it's lost that many figures. Now, obviously, one of the clever things you can do here, and one of the things that does actually quite endear me to being shot mum, is the fact that you can tune your how good your force is by what that table looks like. So, for example, German Panzergrenadiers, because of that preponderance of unpleasant MG34s, tend to actually get four actions when they're eight, and then drop down to three at seven, and tail off from there. You could build a unit of really brittle fanatics that are four dice at eight, three at seven, six at two at six, one at five, and run away on a four and just cease being effective fighting unit on a four. You could produce a typical gritty British unit which is perky till it loses its first casualty and then hangs around on two dice until it's lost four or five figures before it actually gets any worse. It's possible to basically make units behave in various ways by how you draw up that table and it's when somebody hands you and i ain't being shot on force list it definitely behooves you to look at that table and see what the staying power of your various units is because it's quite an interesting thing to play with as part of scenario design i, I love doing that so that's that that's essentially infantry this is not and there are those who could argue it's a downside one of those systems where everything shares the same mechanism. The fire table is purely for infantry and for anti-infantry attacks. I'll get to it in a minute. Armour works completely differently. Armour has a number of different, different rules. Essentially, in combat with armour, you roll to hit based on range and a number of factors. If you hit then your tank has an attack factor and a defense factor. You roll the number of dice equal to your tank's attack versus your number of dice equal to your target's defense. Um, and you each count successes. If you're firing in the front, you're both rolling fives and sixes. If you're firing at the flank, the defender is still rolling fives and sixes, but the attacker is rolling fours, fives and sixes. If you're rolling at the rear, the defender still rolls fives and sixes, but the attacker rolls threes, fives and sixes. So you can see... As you work your way around a tank, um, it gets easy to damage if you can get around the flank or around the rear. This is actually quite a nice little mechanism. I have to say, I have a soft spot for this as a way of doing tanks, and clearly so does Rich, because this is exactly what you use for chain of command as well. The end result of this is you look to see, you compare your successes against the defence's successes, um, anything from 0, or zero 1, 2, 3, at 3 it blows, at 3 it's destroyed, at 4 it blows up and does collateral damage around it, and not one or two you do various amounts of damage permanently mobilized temporarily mobilized gun out for a turn gun out permanently and so on and so forth so that's armor versus armor guns versus infantry essentially guns have a number of dice assigned to them that rolls on the fire table as if it was infantry so for example an 88 not an 88 uh, a 25 pounder has two dice and it will roll two dice on the fire table and you might think, oh, that's not much uh, compared to a full infantry section, which is throwing three dice. No, it isn't. But for one very important thing, 
And this is, to my mind, possibly the killer ruling on it being shot on. It's the one that you've got to not forget when you're playing combined arms because it's the thing that will make you win. And that is that on the World War II battlefield, artillery is king. Read any description and you will rapidly learn that the sheer shock and awe value of having God knows how many tons of HE land on your head is quite a leveller. And I ain't been shot on reflects this in a very simple way. If you are hit by HE of a calibre larger than 50mm, i.e. the trusty British 2-inch mortar, you are pinned. End of. So, what's this mean for you? This basically means, as I said before, you are um, one level of cover, cover bet, better because you've gone to ground, you can't move and you fire a half effect. It also means that when it comes to close combat, which is a separate mechanism again in Iron Bean Shopman, um, you are at a serious disadvantage. Close combat happens when two infantry units get within four inches. And essentially, you roll a dice for each man, you apply bonuses based on big men, so on and so forth. So in an equal contest, you're rolling roughly equal numbers of dice, and it will be very bloody and probably a draw. However, being pinned halves the number of dice you roll. So instantly, you're in a bad way. So, typically, you will find that there's two or three ways of taking out a position that's held. Oh, also, things like being in hardcover improve your dice, so on and so forth. So, typically, you will find that there are a number of ways in Iron Bean Shop of taking a well-dug-in well infantry unit with more infantry units. Um, you go at it with overwhelming weight of numbers, like about three to one, and you hope you roll enough dice, which is all very well, and I've seen it work, but you do really need to, you really need to work at it, or you... Shoot the bejesus out of it until you pin it, and then you go in with a bayonet. Now, there are a couple of ways of doing this. If you're lucky with your dice and positioned rightly, you take three infantry sections, you fire with the first two, and hopefully on some of, one of those first two rolls you, you pin the target, and then you go in with the third unit, and you're probably rolling eight, nine, ten dice if you're going in with a big man, and they will be rolling... 8, 9, 10 dice, plus 1 per 2, and then halved. So they're rolling less dice than you by virtue of being pinned. They've probably also taken damage while you've been firing at them. The much easier approach, and one I think beloved of many commanders in World War II, is you pound the snot out of the position with HE, and then you go in with the bayonet. Because HE auto-pins. Uh, and this is why this is a, a big encouragement for combined arms. In, in I Ain't Been Shot One, because it really doesn't matter if the HEs come from an artillery barrage or the guys you're the guys in the big clanking metal tin can with a 75mm gun that you're advancing next to who are plastering the buildings you want to take. Either way, works just fine by me. So that's HE. Other than to say there are nice rules for artillery. Essentially, you have a foo if you're firing off the table artillery. Uh, your foo has a card that goes in the deck. When his card comes up, he can roll to contact the battery. If he succeeds, then the battery goes in the deck. The battery's card goes in the deck at the next tea break. And when that comes up, you get to fire. Um, and there's rules for fire after effect and scatter and that kind of thing, which is good. On top of that, what, have, what else have we got that I've missed? The important things that we have missed. There's air support rules, which are one of the things I'm possibly less happy about. So I'll discuss that a little bit later on. There is also, like Chain of Command, it has a pre-game phase, if you'd like. 
unlike Chain of Command, it's sort of seamlessly integrated into the rest of the game. In the Iron Bean Shop Room has this concept of blinds. Now, a blind is basically an oval marker under which there might be nothing, or there might be a platoon-sized group of figures. Now, the ones with nothing are called dummy blinds. When you your scenario brief will typically say you have X real blinds and Y dummy blinds. Now, a dummy blind, not quite nothing. You you the best way to imagine it is it's a two man patrol that's been sent out to do a little probing. If it gets spotted, it will softly and silently vanish away without revealing what's underneath it. If your blind gets spotted, then and it has got figures underneath it, you have to lay those figures on the table within a certain distance of the blind. Now, the important thing to remember, blinds can spot. So blinds can also make people very paranoid, but more importantly, blinds can spot. If you are attacking a defended position, then typically you will send out a bunch of little patrols, otherwise known as dummy blinds, to try and spot where things are. You also, sometimes you can do that by actually making successful spotting rolls, Bearing in mind that blinds have actions like sections do, except they have one more. They have four dice rather than three dice, typically. So they can move further. Uh, so they typically, you will quite often see what a blind will do is it'll take two dice to move, one dice to go to ground to reduce its chances of being spotted, and one dice to spot itself. Or, if it's stationary and wants to spot, it will use one dice to stay onto ground, one dice to spot, and two dice plus one bonuses on the spot roll. So, in the same way that Chain of Command has this patrol phase that is basically the units feeling it out. A well-run, well-set-up, I ain't been shot mum scenario tends to have an early period of blinds feeling each other out, or in the cases where it, the defending side won't have physical blinds, but essentially every piece of cover is a blind, and units units in that cover can have will will behave in the same way as a blind from purposes of spotting if they need to. Which makes for an interesting pre-game it's I, I hesitate to call it a pre-game phase. It's a pre-game phase in that you start out with blinds. You don't have to, but most scenarios start out with blinds. The difference between it and chain of command is that it slowly evolves into the full blown game because blinds keep getting spotted. Whereas in Chain of Command, your patrol phase happens and then you put down jump-off markers, which is, is a different way of doing it. In, in, in I Ain't Been Shot Mum, there's a degree of sort of smoothly integrating from, from blinds, if you handle them sensibly, into, into full-blown units on the table that happens, evolves kind of organically over time. You do start out your typical I Ain't Been Shot Mum scenario with, with the classical empty battlefield in that you spend your first few activations the blinds card. Yeah, blinds have a card, I should have said. Um, feeling out the opposition, and, and then it slowly turns into a full-scale battle. And it works. So, that's a rather rambling summary, but that that's essentially I Ain't Been Shot Mum. So, what do I like? I love the activation system. That really is very Marmite. I'm, I'm well aware that if you are not a fan of not having perfect control over your troops, then this is not for you. I hesitate to say then you don't get how warfare works, but it's certainly the case that I find that having that level of uncertainty of not being able to guarantee that your men will do what you tell them to is, is an intrinsic part of, of, of the command problem that is war. I love 
the armor mechanic i think the opposed dice roll is just just elegant and and i can fully understand why rich has reused it i i love the whole activation system i love big men in general i've told the story a number of times of one of my um clubmates having having the the what you probably call the road to damascus moment um in a small i ain't been shot one game we were playing and i pointed out to him that getting some smoke between him and the germans would probably be a very very good idea and the next card that came up was his company co who was about 12 inches down the road from the only two inch mortar section still alive and basically he used his two activation three activations to charge madly down the road um rally a point of shock off the mortar team because they needed it and scream loudly at them to fire smoke and the thing about chain of command is that you can turn the turn of cards into that story and i think i've said in the past on this podcast that for me wargaming is not just about moving figures around it's about telling a story and to be able to have a mechanism that allows you to impose in the nicest possible way impose a narrative on what's happening on the table i think it's just brilliant things i don't like well there's a couple um we've never been at the club very happy with the air rules it seems very hard given the perceived superiority of 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 air when it was there to actually get air to do something telling um, now i don't know whether this is that i have an overinflated opinion of what air should air, air asset should be good for in world war Two or what but I, I found to the extent that my players stopped they, if they were given options for what supports to ask for they wouldn't take air um which is kind of disappointing when i gone gone to the uh, trouble of painting the figure etc so that that's one um the other massive gripe um and i know i give richard grief about this at every line end is the rule book so desperately needs an index it is an feature of i ain't been shot mum as i commented earlier that it does not have this single overriding mechanism that handles everything which is i won't say it's a holy grail of a rule designer but it's certainly the case that you see a lot of rules nowadays where they hit they find the perfect mechanism and they manage to make it do so there are a lot and i mean a lot of special case tables there are metric bleep loads to the extent that the official quick reference sheet is six pages now this is a problem chain of command has as well and it's it's unavoidable with the way the rules are written uh, but it does really mean that invariably there is some point during a game when you're going i need to do x to y and that's not something i do very often and i have no freaking clue where the rules are for it um there is no index and this makes it potentially quite hard we have on occasions actually come back two days after the scenario gone by the way the rule you wanted was page was was section 9.7 which is a little bit frustrating it's the probably the major downer on what is otherwise i consider a brilliant set of rules i mean i make the bones about it these are my go-to set of world war ii rules if you were asked me to take a single rule set and figures for it to a desert island it would unquestionably be i am unquestionably be i ain't been shot mum just because of the scope for so much variance 
there are so many things you can do with the rules. So, with that in mind, that is I ain't being shot mum. In the cold light of day. Once again, I'd like to apologise for the late deliveries of motivation and time, which caused this podcast not to appear in October like I promised. I'm going to stick my neck out and say that I will try my best to get episode 5 out by the end of November. I do have a pretty reasonable idea of what's in it. There'll be a reasonable catch-up on, on notable events since I last did what I've been doing. There will be the usual sections of a blog watch and a one of my thoughts sections. Uh, I do know what that's about, but you'll just have to wait and see. So, until then, um, cheerio and roll good dice. <laughs> The Miller's Tale is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License.